if you've joined us since the beginning, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming. It's a real joy to have back uh, following Sunday, um, Glyn Harrison, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at Bristol University. So without any further ado, Glyn, over to you. Thank you so much, Ed. And uh, it's great to be here again, everybody. Thank you so much for turning out, especially when it's raining. There's a tube strike. Um, just get myself organized a little bit here. What a wonderful band. What a wonderful sense of God's presence with us. Seems a, a bit of a, a leftward turn to suddenly be talking about engaging with culture. Uh, but everything is the Lord's. There's no patch of this earth that he doesn't say mine on and so there actually isn't that disjuncture between the business of the gospel and uh, looking outward to what's going on in the world that we might think it's all his and all to be brought under and will be brought under the lordship of Christ. So on Sunday, uh, we set ourselves this question of identity. And we began by noticing the power of this particular topic, our self-concept, our self-understanding, the way we think about ourselves and conceive of ourselves, the power of this topic to divide us in society, to push us apart. And not only push us apart, but then bring us back together again, beating one another in a sense of struggle, sometimes out, um, sometimes open war. And on Sunday, we, we asked, how did we get here? And uh, I argued that Charles Taylor's description of the rise of the buffered self was probably one of the best ways to understand where, why we're in the position we find ourselves in selves cut off from sources of meaning coming from beyond the self, looking only for sources of meaning from within the self. Look inside yourself is the mantra out there on the streets, isn't it? You just need to look inside. And then we asked, um, is the rise of the buffered self working? Is it doing more harm than good? And those two questions, if we can put them up there, they're there already, um, are going to be the first part of what we're going to do together before we break for a few questions, okay? We, we promised a deeper dive into those two areas. How did we get here? And is the rise of the buffered self causing more harm than good? It's not going to be a very deep dive, given how time's moving on, but uh, at least we'll scratch a little deeper at the surface than we did on Sunday. Okay, so how did we get to this point, the rise of the buffered self? What enabled this rise? What have been the factors that have allowed this change in our culture? Well, lots of factors, in fact. There are economic factors, there are even medical or biological factors in play here, but the one I want to focus on 
for most of this time is the power of ideas. The power of ideas to change the way we think. Luther said, if you want to change the world, you need to pick up a pen and write. And of course, he did, and the world changed. And we have been much more influenced over the centuries by critical thinkers, philosophers, whose ideas have then filtered out into the culture and changed the people we are and the way we live. And the one I want to focus on tonight, next slide, is a 19th century, one of the great atheistic philosophers of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche. Well, you say, what's Nietzsche got to do with where we are now? Well, I think he's probably one of the most important names uh, that we could mention. Now, if, you, if we've got a philosopher here, any kind of professional philosophers or academics, be prepared to wince, okay, at the speed that we're going to cover uh, this man. But son of a Lutheran pastor, he was another person from a vicarage, from a manse, um, with a extraordinary mind, intellect, and a rather odd personality. In fact, he spent the last 10 years of his life in a mental asylum, in a, as they were called in those days, a mental health center, as we call them now, uh, his mind having been taken apart by a psychotic disorder. But before that time, he produced many, many books, most of which had little or no impact at the time, but as we go and see, which have exerted an extraordinary effect on us today. And he became famous, even a little around his lifetime, more subsequently, for one of his most important, well-known statements. Let's see it. He said, please, yes, God is dead, he said, and we have killed him. As I said earlier, he was one of the great atheistic philosophers. Um, and his term, God is dead, what he meant by this was given uh, what we know from the, from the Enlightenment and the, the advance of science and the way these new insights and understandings have effectively buried the concept of God, we need to come to terms with that. He is dead, he says, and through our intellectual efforts, we have killed him. So he was one of the great atheistic philosophers, Freud, Marx, Feuerbacher before him, of the 19th century. But it wasn't his atheism for which he's primarily known. Lots of them around. It was almost fashionable to be an atheist. So that, that wasn't what makes Nietzsche stand out. What makes him so important is that more than any other philosopher, certainly of the time, Freud squared up to, sorry, um, Nietzsche squared up to and understood the consequences of atheism. So God is dead and we have killed him isn't so much a, a cry of triumph as many people believe, a cry of anguish. God is dead. And we killed him. And more than any other, Nietzsche got what that meant. 
Because he said, you can't get rid of God and then hang on to the values which rest on him for their validity and their foundation. You get rid of God, it all goes. There's no such thing as objective truth out there. There's nobody up there to adjudicate between your truth and her truth and his truth and their truth. There's just ideas. Your ideas, your ideas, and the ideas that bubble up to the top, he said, simply belong to the people who've got the power to get them there and the influence. And he got that. And if you kill God, he said, there are no absolutes, no a priori's, no universals, no objective truth, just you. And so you see, turning to the individual, he said, what then are you if all you do is submit yourself to ever happen to hold power and exert power in your life? You're nothing. Not only are you simply left with your little version of the truth, nobody's interested in it anyway. You're just the subject of other people's oppressive power over you. No, no, he said, if you want to become a true person, next slide, the world itself is the will to power and nothing else. Next slide, you should become the person you are. You must rise up, he said, exert your own power. The term he used was the will to power. You as a person must will your own power and get your idea out there. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. There's no such thing as truth anyway. But you at least have asserted your identity, your selfhood in the world. Now, you might say this makes sense to me, but... Friends, Nietzsche is everywhere on our streets today. Become the person you are. You, you be yourself. Don't let them oppress you. Don't, don't you tell me who I must be or what I must do. I identify. I assert my will. I impose my will. <clears throat> No right, no wrong, next slides, as we said. No rules for me. Why are we singing along already? What not to like? This appeals to our deepest fallen desires. Do you remember what the serpent whispered into Eve's ear? You shall be as gods. You shall. You get to make the rules, knowing good from evil. You're competitor to God out there. You take him on. You shall be as gods. Rise up. Be powerful. And the genius of our culture today is that as it's responded to this Nietzschean view, it's flattened all its complexity down into a simple aphorism like this. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Left unexamined, it sounds great. 
Examine it for half a second and it's complete nonsense. None of us could exist in a world in which there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. Next slide. But this is the strength of this idea within our culture. It's so accessible, so easy. Be who you are. So here's the thing, as, as we survey the world of the buffered self, $64,000 question, does it work? After nearly half a century over which we've been telling ourselves to just be who we are, is our mental health improving? Relationships more stable, rewarding? A generation of kids growing up with the confidence to go out and make something of the world. Friends, next slide. Across the, world, the, the, the West, mental health issues, next slide, are on the rise. Especially anxiety, self-harm, especially among the young. You see here, this is... Um, Pupils with additional support needs arising from mental health problems. 2011, 12, 13, 14. The graph goes on up. Young people. Next slide. Students. Here we have the House of some Commons Library briefing paper that drives from some other data. Six-fold increase in student mental ill health since 2000. And 10. Now, of course, look, I was a psychiatrist and I'm a psychiatric epidemiologist. That um, data and all the errors you can make with data are my bread and butter, or have been. So I'm, I don't want to oversimplify this. Of course, part of this is greater awareness, part of it is more readiness to come forward. So we, we, we must be careful, but the fact that this correlates with or mirrors what's happening amongst children and amongst students too gives us cause for concern and certainly at an anecdotal level counseling services mental health services are overwhelmed especially among the young next slide please and here we have the rise in young people reporting self-harm you see that there 2000 2007, 2014. This is self-harm. Um, well, that, time's moving on. I, I won't talk anymore about that. What's the next slide? Just help me. Um, okay, just go back to the previous one. Um, now, of course, as I say, the, these negative trends can't be blamed on the rise of the buffered self in any simplistic way. But my point is that after half a century of this, it's really hard to unearth the mental health benefits that this philosophy claims. That's the problem. And there are a number of areas. People are more lonely than they were. The, 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 the reported rates of, holy, of loneliness have been rising. Here's a really interesting one. People's sex lives are on the decline. A revolution that was born out of a vision that more and freedom, liberation sexually, strangely, oddly, 
the number of times people have sex between the age 16 and 40, I'm not talking about oldest here, 16 and 40, it's been declining steadily since 2010, the number of times people have sex a month. Why, says Professor Spiegelhalter in his book, Sex by Numbers, you may have heard him on radio, he's a very, very competent and interesting statistician, great communicator. In his book, Sex by Numbers, in which he takes a, a careful look at the statistics, he maps some of this mysterious decline in our sexual activity. He maps it out. He says, why, he says, if you extrapolate this graph of decline, no one will be having any sex at all by the year 2040. <laughs> I very much doubt that that'll be the case, as does he. But isn't it interesting that a revolution that promised more delivers less? That, and there's no, there's no increase in quality over... That, that argument can't be made either. And doesn't this remind you of the nature of idols? They always deliver promise more and more, but deliver less and less until in the end they have everything. You have nothing. So we're involved in a really interesting cultural movement here, and there are other good reasons for doubting whether this thing works at all, and whether indeed it might be doing more harm than good. And there are several of these, and again, because of time, I'm just going to comment on, on a couple, and then we'll stop for some Q&A. We talked on Sunday about the common sense argument, didn't we? This, this culture that tells us to look inside ourselves but doesn't tell us to, what to do with what we find. Um, because it can't, of course. The incoherence is staggering. Because on the one hand, you're a cosmic accident, a piece of flotsam on the great ocean of chance and probability, a random collection of atoms on the one hand, that's what atheism tells us, but on the other, you're a person of dignity and worth with human rights. And the incoherence is extraordinary. How can you have rights if this is all true? Well, Sunday, we, we sort of looked at the common sense argument, but then I just want to touch on evidence that this may be harming us more from the research into self-esteem. Uh, and I cover this in more detail in, in my book, Ego Trip, um, and I'm just gonna run over it fairly briefly just now, okay? But the, the self-esteem movement, which arose about six decades ago, rightly understood that having basic self-worth is critical to human mental health and flourishing. You need to have a sense of worth, a sense of significance, as a foundation on which then to go out with confidence to engage with the world around us. So that was right, you see. And then, rightly, the self-esteem movement and its early exponents understood that you, 
you can't base this sense of self-worth on your achievements, which is, of course, instinctively what all of us do. Because if you do that, you're a successful person just now. And you say, that makes me an important person. I'm successful in my job. I'm therefore successful and important in my life, me, my worth, my significance. Sounds great. But what happens when you stop being successful? Having hitched your worth to your achievements, what happens now when you no longer achieve or you get old or you, you, you become, you, you suffer a disability? Or young guns come up alongside you and that sense of achievement that you had at the top of the tree, they're now pulling on past you and nobody can remember who you are in your firm or academic world. Believe me, it happens so fast. So fast. You know, one of the things I, I, I had as um, I was president of one of these um, organizations, um, uh, it, it, these academic organizations, it was an international one, and I mentioned this simply to say that I was intrigued by the way elderly, retired professors would write in, wanting a plenary to present ideas from five, ten years ago. Because, you see, their wives divorced them long ago. They've been stalking the world of international conferences. And it's all about being noticed and seen. And you feel, as they get older, the fingers, marks clinging on as they slip down into insignificant. Ah, oh, we've got to get a library named after us. Or we've got to get a statue or a plaque even. Or if the worst comes to the worst, a seat at the Royal Opera House with our name on it or something like that. Anything that perpetuates our sense of being noticed, seen. Rightly, the self-esteem movement recognized that this is the boom or bust ego. You're booming one minute when you achieve and busting the next when... You don't. And it said that is no basis on which to build your self-worth. So that's the second good thing it found out. Then things went wrong because it said, or it asked, so on what should you base your sense of worth? Well, you say it yourself. Self-esteem, you see? I am a lovable person. Sounds good, actually, because no one can take that away. If you believe that, no one can take it away. I am a lovable person. When I walk into a room, people are drawn to me like iron filings to a magnet. I attract people. I'm seen. I'm noticed. I'm confident. I am a lovable person. And so it goes, and you can download a pack of self-affirming statements from the website of the American Self-Esteem Society, <laughs> if it's still there. And you can, you, you can rehearse these, I am a lovable person. Forget quiet times, have a little selfie quiet time. I'm good, I attract 
happy. Keep saying it over. That's the idea with self-esteem at its simplest. And it's at its simplest that it's most dangerous because it's the simple version that is then on our roads, on our streets, in our hearts. Firm yourself. You say how much you're worth, you see. The problem is, psychologists took a long time to get around to really asking the question, does this work? Where's the evidence? And a number of studies have come forward to suggest it, it does not. Now, I just want to show you one. And again, I do summarize quite a few of the studies in that book. But this is um, uh, uh, some work carried out by a psychologist called Joanna Wood. I don't change the slide just for a minute. I want to keep people in suspense. Joanna Wood, she's um, at the University of Ontario, Hamilton, Ontario, in, in Ontario in the state, in uh, Canada. Uh, and she's been interested in self-esteem for a while. And the question she asked, these positive self-statements, telling yourself how worthy you are, um, how good are they? Do, do, do they do the work they're supposed to do? So she took... Two groups of people, she randomized a group of subjects into two groups. She then carried out a raft of psychological psychometric tests, including measures of how people rated their self-worth. And she divided the two groups into two subgroups. So group one, two subgroups. One of, made up of those with high self-esteem and the other made up of those with low self-esteem, those who, who measured themselves as having low self-worth, in other words. Okay? That's group one. Group two, just the same. You divide your group into those at baseline who have high self-esteem at the beginning and those with low self-esteem. Now, what happens to group one? Group one get a pack of these positive self-statements mostly around the theme, I am a lovable person. And they get an instruction to have a, a selfie quiet time effectively where you meditate on these and you say, how this is true of me. For 20 minutes, every day, for three to six months, okay? Group two got nothing at all. So what happened after three months? How, how are they doing? Well, let, let's, put, let's put up the results. And we see here the people on the left in the no statement condition, okay? Basically, they haven't changed at all. You just take my word for it. I'm not showing you the, the baseline now. I'm just showing you what they were like at three months, okay? So the people who didn't get anything at all and got on with their lives, you've got the low self-esteem group on the left and you've got the high self-esteem group on the right, the black one there, okay? So what happened to the people who've, who've been boosting their sense of worth? Well, they're on the right and you can see that the people with low self-esteem actually are now lower in self-esteem than they were. And the people with high self-esteem are higher now compared with the others and compared with how they were. 
And so Joanna Wood says, the, these self-affirming statements actually help people who already feel pretty good about themselves feel a bit better. So if you're Donald Trump, you go into this feeling great by the end of the study, or even greater. But if you've got low self-worth, you come out feeling worse. She said they backfire for the people who need them most. Why? Because it's just your own propaganda. That's all. A little bit of flotsam floating on the great sea of chance and probability says, I'm a lovable person. No, you're not. And the human heart knows this. Deep inside, we know it. And we reach up, is there someone who will love us and affirm us and tell us of our significance and raise us up and lift us up and flesh us out and give us a sense of foundation on which to live our lives? And the thing is, if self-affirmation works so badly for self-esteem, then I'd argue that self-identification, self-definition has similar strength for identity. You just need to say who you are. But what if you don't think you're very much? That's the problem. And so these are some of the reasons, I think, why we're where we are today, because the self has become hollowed out, weakened rather than strengthened. And indeed, there's evidence, next slide, that one of the negative effects of all this, and of course, I can't prove exact causal relationship here. These are only correlations. And so pinch of, um, a little more than a pinch of salt, but caution in this, but look, here, this is a, a, a psychologist, a very prolific psychologist called Jean Twang. Um, you may have read, seen some of her books, but she mapped rates of narcissistic personality traits in student populations over seven, several decades. Huge amount of data collection and analysis that she did. And you can see between 1980 and 2005, narcissism, self-regard, a preference to place the needs of the self over needs of others, rising, rising. And she makes, I think, the perfectly reasonable point that this is one of the side effects, one of the consequences of the self-esteem movement, the efforts to boost our own worth. 